Where's Raphael? There. You have the roving mic. Okay. So, uh, to conclude, um, this is an opportunity really for you to feed back uh, questions or, or comments, um, objections, whatever you have, um, either about the practice we've been doing and what I said this morning, or about the content of the talk, or anything that's come up for you personally in the context of what we've been doing today. So it's in totally open field. This lady at the back. I, I'm not going to hear you without a... a, a yeah, uh, Raphael will bring you the mic. This is the mic? Okay. Okay. Um, it's about the practice that you talked about this morning. Um, right after you spoke about um, the question, what is this, we walked and so I was uh, applying that. And I noticed pretty quickly that I felt like I was noting, you know, all the sensations and what I was thinking. And I thought, well, no, there must be more to this than that, or it's different. So when we did the sitting, I sat and... Um, when I would do that, what is this? It, I would never really get an answer except it's a suspension of knowing. Like, I just didn't know. And then later I did it a little more just now, and it felt like um, it's certainly not what I thought or what I'm thinking. And that's as far as I've gotten. So um, I know there's no answer, but I wondered if anyone else would share what answers they got, just to kind of... Uh, prime the pump, so to speak, or if I'm way off base, that you could sort of move me along in my understanding or get me back on track. That was it. Would anyone like to, to add to that? Okay, I'll say a few words. The, um, in some respects, the question, um, what is this, which we... I mean, I, I said very little about it. I mean, there's, it's a whole big theory around how Yeah, you do I wanted it. to hear more. <laughs> um, the, it, it, it does function in some ways similarly to the process of noting because it, it, it's some, it's some, it, it is a tool to bring you back. It's a tool to somehow almost jolt you into a recognition of what's happening. It's a very good... Um, device to cut through distraction and in fact our, our teacher used to say it's like a sword that cuts through distracted thoughts and not only does it have the ability to somehow cut through and stop you it also because it's a question it throws you into a state of unknowing as you pointed out so the noting aspect of it is 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 quite valid the unknowing aspect of it is in fact one of the key elements because when we ask a question even a trivial question like you know, where is 57th street or whatever 
and we really don't know where 57th Street is, then every question is implicitly an acknowledgement that you don't know something. Now, in a trivial sense, that's not particularly remarkable. But when you ask a question like, who am I? Or what is the meaning of life? Then you're actually tacitly acknowledging, I don't know who I am. I don't know what the meaning of my life is. And sometimes in this practice, you can actually alternate what is this with I don't know. And in fact, it, it, the, the meditation functions through a kind of, uh, kind of symbiosis between inquiry, questioning, puzzlement, perplexity and its underbelly of not knowing, confusion. But in many respects, in a meditative context, it just leaves you in a state of a kind of a perplexed openness. And one thing I think is probably worth pointing out, when you ask what is this, and this is where it differs from noting, is you don't have as the object of that question a particular thing, like, for example, a thought that comes in your mind or the noise of the air conditioner. You don't ask, you know, what is this noise or what is that feeling in my knee? But the questioning is... Um, has as its object uh, the totality of what is at that moment. So you actually try to um, open yourself to that experience that precedes the split between subject and object. This is what our teacher used to say all the time, all the time. He'd say, what is this? And you go, uh, 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 and he would, or you'll give him some sort of zenny answer. And they say, well, what was it before you said that? <laughs> In other words, it's to bring the attention, it's, it's, it's to root the attention into, into the primary lived experience of this moment before the mind begins to s separate things apart, create divisions, categorize, compartmentalize, explain. So it's trying to rest in a kind of full awareness, but an awareness that's not just gazing or blankly looking, or certainly not an awareness that is somehow expecting or intending somehow to grasp what it means for something to be selfless or impermanent or anything like that. But actually before all of that happens, that primary perplexed unknowing is as it were the, the quality of mind that this practice seeks to instill within awareness itself and so it may start when you first start doing it uh, it can sometimes feel a little bit mechanical a little bit contrived even uh, maybe that wasn't your experience but you were lucky the, it's quite likely that that this is very often what's reported back. Once you get used to it, once you begin to somehow integrate it and get a feel for it, uh, in the Zen tradition it's often said that you should question with your body, that you should question with 
the marrow of your bones and the pores of your skin. I love that image because that's really what it's getting at. It's not an intellectual inquiry at all, but it's, it's somehow putting the whole organism into a state of puzzlement without expectation and in an acknowledgement of not knowing. So thank you. Thank you. I feel like it really helped um, because I had a very physical experience when I asked that question. Mm -hmm. It felt very, and very large, mm -hmm. but it didn't have that pointed, I mean, it was like having your concentration encompass every single mm -hmm. thing and a yeah. very physical, but also kind of big mind experience, a big heart experience. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think yeah. I, that, that resonates very closely to how I would present it, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. We move the mic to this gentleman here. I wanted to, uh, to go back to the talk uh, that you gave this afternoon. And I wanted to offer just a couple of uh, sort of stipulations to start mm -hmm. with. One is I've, I've been working in the sciences for about 30 years. Mm -hmm. And I've been a sort of a Buddhist for about that long, too. Uh, and... Uh, wanted to mention just a couple other things. One is, you know, I, Thomas Jefferson wrote, did, created something he called, they call the Jefferson Bible, which was an effort to distill from the Bible just the words mm -hmm. of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And my approach to Buddhism tries to be something like that. I try, I think, to look at the adulteration to the mm -hmm. changes and, mm -hmm. and try and see as clearly as I can from the sources what, what the Buddha himself has been saying. I think you were doing the same thing. Yeah. And uh, the other thing I'd, I'd say is that um, there's a scientist I know who says that all that any human being ever sees is his own or her own nervous system. Nervous system, yeah. All that we ever see. I mean, and, and what the spirit of that is really to be a radical reductionist in mm -hmm. terms of, I would say, empiricism and logical positivism. Really to say that, so, and I, in terms of that last comment, just to say that I think the question of whether there are celestial beings or devas mm -hmm. uh, in the world mm -hmm. is really something that we can't address empirically. I can't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, so I, I'm, willing to, I'm willing to be an agnostic about that point because I think that I think in all, in all genuine you know, empirical humility, we can't mm -hmm. say anything about mm -hmm. that. I actually think that. Sure. But to go now to, you, to, to the, sort of the root of your points, I, I think that as I'm listening to you and hearing what you're saying, I think what I see is a problem in, I, mean, I should say I've been grappling with exactly these same mm -hmm. issues for a while and actually talking to some other scientists and people mm -hmm. about it as well. And uh, I mean, I, I see it as a problem perhaps with the definition of mind, sort of the fifth condo or the sixth mm -hmm. sense base, mm -hmm. that notion of consciousness. Consciousness, as I see it, is an activity. It's not an entity. Mm -hmm. And positing that mind is an entity seems to me to be falling into exactly the fallacy that the Buddha himself mm -hmm. said, don't do. Mm -hmm. I mean, it seems to me that it's falling into that trap of whether we call it soul mm. or self or mind. We're still positing an entity of some sort. If we don't posit that, I actually don't see any problem with the notion of rebirth. Because then we, we all know that every person in this room is the product of millions, hundreds mm. of millions of years of evolution. Absolutely. In my mind, no doubt about it at all. Every one of us mm. is the product of a, a genetic lineage. Uh, genetic heritage, and we now even think there may be such thing as cultural memes that are inherited. Richard Dawkins and other people talk about that, the inheritance or evolution of memes culturally. So, you know, that from that standpoint, as long as we don't have to posit an entity mm -hmm. that's being reborn, I see no problem at all with that. And 
if you think, I, th I believe, if we look at what Darwin and Gregor Mendel, a monk actually, mm -hmm. concluded about inheritance and genetics, I can see how karma can actually, or comma, can actually be understood in those terms. Yeah, sure. And, and we now know that inherited characteristics can be inherited, uh, that, that acquired characteristics can be inherited. In a Lamarckian sense? Well, what, what's gene splicing? <laughs> But that's that's an inherited characteristic that mm -hmm. can be a gene a gene can be changed. Mm -hmm. So whether whether it could happen spontaneously or not seems to me likely it could have mm -hmm. by radiation or some other means that genes could be changed and those inheritances thus could be incurred. Mm -hmm. I'm talking now about I'm really saying in a radically empirical mm -hmm. you know reductionist mm -hmm. empirical way mm -hmm. that these things could happen. So and I can see how hence if we think about natural selection natural selection really does address the issue of volitional acts having consequences in our lives that mm -hmm. become, in some sense, heritable. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't really see the problem, <laughs> is what I guess I'm coming down to. I, don't, I mean, I, 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 underst I understand what you're addressing. I mean, I do understand yeah. that there is, an, there, are under there is an understanding out there. But from a strictly empirical standpoint, I don't really see the problem. Well, um, no, I uh, thank you very much for that. Um, I think we're actually talking on parallel lines, in fact. Um, I'm, where I'm coming from is... Uh, you know, I'm addressing the kind of official Buddhist positions that I was, in a way, inducted into, could not accept, and have consequently struggled to find a way of retaining my Buddhist perspective while discarding, or at least suspending belief in, precisely that problem of mind as a kind of entity that is somehow ontologically distinct from the physical organism and that is the root of the problem now um, it may not be a problem for you but it is a problem for a vast number no of doubt, traditional yeah. Buddhists um, who take considerable exception to this particular way of looking at things reincarnation um, in, for probably 99% of Buddhists has to do with the continuity of some non-physical entity now, even the Buddha himself, in some, I, I came across this sutta passage recently, I forget exactly where it is. Um, but in any case, um, consciousness as understood in classical Theravada Buddhism, early Buddhism, um, is always seen as an emergent property of a series of interactions. You have the 18, is it the Ayatana? No, the 18 Datus, for example, where you, consciousness is an emergent Phenomenon that occurs contingently upon the contact between an object and a sense base. So you have a, vis you have a, you have a color or a shape, you have light, it's, it's actually quite similar to our theories, and the sense base is activated, and then consciousness is the result of that interaction. So in other words, consciousness is quite clearly understood as an emergent property of material processes. And, that, and that's a very classic early Buddhist Abhidharmist view and yet it's very difficult to square that with the idea of consciousness as something that does not appear to be contingent on the interaction between a physical organism and a physical world but somehow has an independent existence from both. That's the problem and um, I think the Buddha was aware of that problem um, well not the problem so much but certainly the way in which he presented consciousness was was very unlike some kind of thing. Now, one phrase that's always echoed through my mind um, 
comes from uh, Friedrich Engels, well-known Buddhist scholar, uh, <laughs> who said, consciousness is the last fading echo of the soul. And um, I think that's what a lot of Buddhists have done, is that, okay, self and soul are kind of taboo. We'll have consciousness instead, or we'll have mind, or we'll have awareness or something. But when you look at how the term is actually used... It's, it's really just a substitute for what the Buddha was critiquing. It's, uh, it's, it, it's soul or spirit or, or, or some kind of ontological knowing, raised cogitans effectively, a knowing thing uh, that has snuck in the back door after the self has been evicted. I think there's a, yeah, I think that's right. It's a Cartesian, I mean, it's sort of that Cartesian fallacy of thinking, mm-hmm. if I think I'm, I am, therefore I have to be, mm-hmm. something along those lines. Yeah. I just add just two other things. One is that I think I personally would prefer empirical Buddhism to secular Buddhism as a phrase, trying to focus us yeah. on the empirical processes as opposed to secularity. And the other thing I thought, there's a, there's a professor up at Harvard who says, uh, a scientist, who mm-hmm. says that all natural processes have a historical contingency that prevents universal explanation, which I think is exactly what I heard you saying this morning. Oh, good. Okay. I wasn't aware of that. But... Um, <laughs> It sounds, it sounds good. Could you repeat it? Yeah. All natural processes have, a, have an historical contingency that prevents universal explanation. So we can never fully know what the totality... No, I agree with that. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, empirical... Well, to me, empirical would probably be... I've never... Th- I've not really thought this through, but... Um, I like the word secular... Um, because it, it, it has an immediate kind of uh, uh, conflict with religious. It also has that, the ethical dimension that I think you spoke to. It has an ethical dimension too. And it also focuses attention very much in il secolo, this time, our time, which I think is crucial. Um, but surely, I agree, I find... The thing, there's a lot of discussion between Buddhism and science and a lot of the Dalai Lama and so forth and so on are involved in all this. And a lot of this stuff is very interesting. But I find that a lot of the discourse looks to me very much like Buddhists trying to find in science ways and evidence to legitimate particular Buddhist uh, views that they want to uphold. Particularly the independence of mind from the body. For me, however... I also read a great deal of popular science. I don't have a scientific training. But what it reveals to me most profoundly is an extraordinary illustration of what the Buddhists call dependent origination. Whether it's in evolution or whether it's in cosmology, um, uh, or whether whether it's just in uh, biology, just the extraordinary... Uh, interconnectedness and interrelatedness of all things and that is a point that doesn't really seem to come across to me the scientific worldview uh, does not exactly confirm my Buddhist beliefs but it offers extraordinarily vivid and convincing illustrations of the processes that I feel the Buddha was concerned with and again I think it's worth pointing out that at least in the early tradition the the key to the Buddha's enlightenment again and again comes down to paticca samutpada, dependent origination, or what I like to translate as contingency. And there's this famous passage in the Pali text where the Buddha says, um, uh, those who see contingency see the Dhamma, and those who see the Dhamma see me. 
So he, there's a very strong identification with the Dhamma, the teaching, the law, whatever, and the truth of contingent emergence, impermanence, and so forth, which we find illustrated all over the place, completely independent of anything to do with Buddhism. And that, to me, is where my appreciation of, of science really hits home in terms of my Buddhist practice. Um, I think you have to speak. There's that little tail thing. Oh. <laughs> that is well, th- the thing. This is yeah. more of an observation, I think, yeah. than. Uh, Can an you? Ar- uh, this is more of an observation than an argument mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or a question. Uh, on the one hand, uh, you are moving from having been a Tibetan monk to having a secular formulation mm-hmm. of Buddhism, and some of the founders of Insight, you know, are moving in the opposite mm-hmm. direction. Adopting, uh, adopting Tibetan practices uh, and uh, making statements such as, well, you know, I used to, you know, not think very much of the idea of past and future lives, but I'm sort of, you know, having more of an open in mind about mm-hmm. this. Uh, you know, reports of... of no American uh, Theravadan teachers yet uh, have been reported to walk through walls or possess psychic powers, you know, but some of the teachers of those teachers, you know, are routinely acknowledged to be able to do those things. Well, the onus of proof lies on those who claim to be able to do such things and I think it's almost irresponsible to make such claims and not provide the sort of empirical testable evidence that um, could demonstrate something that I think would have an enormous impact on our understanding of the world Um, and, and so I think really the question has to be thrown back on people who make such claims that if such pra- and again if you look at the Buddhist text these uh, they, they're called the six um, what are they called the six there are six magical power types idis the six sort of um, powers um, and these are regarded as, uh, as as phenomena that can be generated through developing the jhanas and other spiritual faculties in such a way that it looks as though, you know, if you perform the right kinds of meditative exercises, you will reap those particular fruits. And there's lots of um, material in the early canon where the Buddha speaks of such things. Now, therefore, um, the responsibility, I think, very much lies to demonstrate what in fact is being claimed given that the tradition maintains that these are demonstrable qualities. That's my take on that one and I wish it would happen but I have a funny feeling it won't. <laughs> we'll see. And I, you know, I would uh, I'd be very, very interested if such things could be demonstrated. That would really open up the world in another way and I think it would be an enormous contribution. But lots of claims but and lots of anecdotes, lots of stories, but no hard facts, no hard, testable, uh, recordable, demonstrable evidence.
question about <clears throat> your movement uh, away from agnosticism. Uh, you've already discussed, you said, and it's a very Buddhistic thing, mm -hmm. that you, but, but you also called it fudging. Fudging, yes. Yeah. Uh, personally, you know, I have, I have come to that uh, fudging position. I just don't know, you know wow. stuff. But um, I'm interested in the reason that you offered for moving more towards the secular position was because it provides an opportunity for a more total commitment. Uh, the question I have about it, I mean, we live in a country where, according to statistical reports, more people believe in angels than in Darwinian evolution. Mm -hmm. So I'm questioning the utility of, of proclaiming uh, the movement away from agnosticism. Uh, proclaiming the, the, your movement oh, away, I see. Okay. away from agnosticism mm -hmm. in that... In, in, most certainly, I and for each of us, my primary responsibility is is here, uh -huh. you know, not not about changing that. But, but we are talking about a societal matrix here also, and I'm just questioning okay. the utility of that position. All right, um, this is a complicated business. And it's very personal as well. But um, going back to what the lady said before about the question, what is this? and having, as it were, the underbelly of not knowing. Now that I would call a kind of deep agnosticism, which to me is profoundly central to my practice. So on the, like the, like the, the thing you said about uh, a beautiful sentence, can't remember it, the historical contingency of things precludes any total explanation. In that sense, yes, I'm I, I am agnostic, but I'm, to me, that is what I would like to call a deep agnosticism um, that has to do with our fundamental sense of what this is, who I am, what the world is. And that's very much a meditative uh, quality for me. Agnosticism in other respects, I think, is, is more problematic. On the one hand, as you alluded to, it's very difficult for it to be the basis for commitment. Um, take for example the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq now as an agnostic I can say yeah how could I possibly know that I don't know I mean, that would be an honest appraisal of that particular political dilemma at that time I don't have the information they might be true might be false I don't know but from that position how do you act that's my concern the other problem with agnosticism and this is a bit weird really is that Every, all believers in God or rebirth or whatever are necessarily agnostic. <laughs> because if you, there's a big difference between saying, saying I believe in God and I know God. I believe in reincarnation, but I don't actually know it to be the case. So a, someone who holds beliefs is epistemologically um, acknowledging that they don't actually know it, they only believe it. So, in that sense, agnosticism becomes less and less of a distinctive position and more and more just a recognition that the human capacity to know things is limited. Big deal. I, I don't think it actually helps very much, to be honest. Um, 
But I think the real problem is the issue of uh, commitment. And to that extent, um, I, feel more, um, I feel more inclined to affirm that this is the only world that we will know and start from that basis rather than saying, well, this might be the only world we know. That's the difference, really, because I think that gives us a base, a ground for commitment and action, whereas agnosticism doesn't. So, but I would distinguish between that agnosticism in a, as a sort of fun, a functional position and agnosticism as a deep position of a spiritual perspective, which I would very much adhere to. I think we have to take moral, we have to take risks. We have to say, I don't know all the information, but this is wrong. This is good. And that's a risk. And I think that's a very crucial part of being human, is to take a stand. As a Buddhist, admittedly, one must be wary of falling into the traps of views and opinions. That needs to be a constant sort of red light warning system flashing around there. But I don't think we really have a, a sufficient basis for engaging in the world, engaging morally, without having that willingness to take uh, a stance. Um, it, it seems to me to be... A, well, again, I haven't worked this, this out, but it also seems to me to be taking a risk to say, well, I have my certain beliefs, but the majority of human beings who are in this mix with me uh -huh. uh, don't have the same beliefs and the risk that I want to take is not to isolate myself you know, from uh -huh. them by, by attacking in a sense their belief system but to work to work within that uh -huh. um, and that was that's why I asked the question of utility uh -huh. you know I, certainly, I mean, I'm in, actually, uh, I don't have any argument with what you have presented today. Uh -huh. You know, I just, I just wonder about it. There's, there's, <laughs> well, so there's more I. of them than there are of us. I know? wonder about it a lot. I sometimes suffer from agonies of doubt. I think, wouldn't it be a lot easier just to toe the party line? It would. Of course it would. But you see, to me, Buddhism has two... A lot of these issues, if you look to Buddhist tradition, you find conflicting strands. You find a strong tradition in Buddhism of, of suspicion, of criticism. The Buddha saying things like, you know, don't just trust what I say, check it out for yourself, or words to that effect. Um, the Buddha himself, in the, in the dialogues and uh, 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 the discussions that are recorded in the Pali text, he's not the kind of guy who's, who's pushing a position. He's actually a kind of dialectician. He's trying to work with the other person to uncover something that's true. But then you'll also find, uh, in other passages, the Buddha making fairly um, you know, you know, incontrovertible statements. You know, this is this and this is that. Where will this this monk be reborn, O Buddha. And the Buddha says, oh, in 25 lifetimes he'll be born in X and Y and then off he goes, you see. Absolute certainty around this. So you get these two conflicting strands of text and I think in some ways they have become respectively the basis for certain uh, traditions and certain lines of thought and practice within Buddhism. And what I love about Buddhism is the fact that it is actually a very broad church. 
it's able to embrace uh, a diversity of approaches. It has spawned in its history um, an extraordinary range of different practices, of art forms, of philosophies, uh, and so forth and so on. And that, to me, is one of its great strengths. So I'm certainly not uh, interested, really, in trying to persuade all Buddhists that they should see things my way. In fact, that to me would be antithetical to the whole uh, tradition of which I feel to myself to be a part. But I do believe that the tradition grows and matures through um, you know, critical, um, maybe even sometimes quite forceful argument and debate, exchange of ideas. Um, that Again, that's how I was trained by my Tibetan lamas. They gave me a weapon that sort of went out a bit out of control. <laughs> Thank uh, so this gentleman and then John there at the back. I, I'd just like to pursue this line a little bit further because um, your book, Buddhism Without Beliefs, was frankly my introduction to Buddhism and I found it to be very congenial. Um, and then you talked about agnosticism early in that book, as I recall, and that seemed that was the flavor that permeated the book. But I came to that book from a very naturalistic approach, and the agnosticism seemed very natural, but it seemed to be without consequence because I, I could read it uh, naturalistically, or to use your words, secularly, and with no problem. Mm -hmm. And I wonder now, I heard your example about the difference between agnosticism and secularism, and you use the example of weapons in Iraq. Um, mm -hmm. Could you use something from your practice? Because your position on Iraq, whatever that might be, probably is unaffected by the shift in your thinking about Buddhism, uh, shifting from an agnostic view to a secular view. Maybe the example doesn't fit that well. Okay, so an example I'm, I'm wondering if there's a, a better example from your practice that would illustrate the difference. I can't think of one offhand. It's always tricky. But I think that example I did, the reason I gave that example was because it was something I struggled with at the time. And I saw there the limitations of... the. I saw the limitations of the logic of my own thinking in that. And it would have been very comforting to have adopted an agnostic stance on that whole issue. But morally, I think it would have been irresponsible. And, um, of course, it's not the sort of issue that one normally associates people taking agnostic positions about. And that's probably the frustration behind your question. Um, well, okay, let me... One thing that... Uh, Can I inject another thought yes. that might further illustrate my difficulty, at least in the case of Iraq, after the fact, whether you're agnostic going in or not. Now, there are new facts that are available, mm -hmm. and so maybe you don't have to be an agnostic anymore, or one would not have to be an agnostic anymore if mm -hmm. one was prior to 2003. Yeah, once you so it's once, resolved, yes, exactly. Perhaps. Once you get information, once you get knowledge, then obviously you're no longer you're no longer agnostic, by definition. But another, I think, one important shift for me has been um, has been uh, an increasing 
willingness to positively affirm the primacy of this world as the focus for Buddhist compassion and wisdom. So it's not, I'm not saying anymore this may be the only world or there might be other worlds, I really don't know, but da-da-da-da-da-da, but I'm actually prepared to say this is the only world. Now, if I'm pushed on that, of course I'll say, well, I don't know really, but this is the place I wish to begin not the place of unknowing, but a place of affirmation. And to try to build up a Buddhist theory and practice on the basis of that affirmation. What would a, a Buddhist position be that evolved from that position? And that's a major shift in my thinking. And um, I'm, at some point I'll write on this. I, I'm already working, uh, I'm writing a series of theses at the moment on secular Buddhism, trying to boil down my position to a series of, of key axioms on which I would then try to develop further um, a more fully developed uh, philosophy. But again, I, I haven't abandoned agnosticism altogether at all, um, but rather put it into a somewhat different context. Maybe we should put it like that. Thank I'll you. look forward to the book. Uh, well, don't hold your breath. <laughs> uh, behind you, this gentleman, John, and then this gentleman here, if that's okay. Um, I, I wanted to go back to the end of your talk, which was addressing action mm -hmm. and also addressing sort of fundamentalist beliefs mm -hmm. of other uh, mono, uh, theistic religions and talk about fear and the, the rise, especially in this country I think of fundamentalism comes from a position of fear mm -hmm. and that one way to counteract fear is to have no doubt mm -hmm. to be certain about one thing at least which the fundamentalists are able to be whereas the strength in what we're practicing is the freedom to doubt mm -hmm. which for me anyway allows a certain fearlessness yes um, but the, the trap we fall into and the, the trap we fall into is that we accept things as they are mm -hmm. and don't necessarily think there's a next step yes don't necessarily feel that we can improve them we just accept them as they are and that makes us happy or less fearful but we can of course move to the next step and still do it in a fearless way and in a compassionate way and it doesn't have to be to the millions it can be to the person next door or whatever um, and I'll just leave it there Okay. Yes, uh, I think you're absolutely right about the nature of fundamentalism it's a response to uncertainty and fear it's, we live in a world, um, a secular world, if you wish, um, that has somehow deprived our societies of its ancestral certitudes. A um, hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, I don't think this would have been such an issue. Uh, but certainly it is a feature of modernity and post-modernity. And fundamentalism is extremely attractive to someone who feels adrift, who's someone who feels 
totally groundless, nothing to stand on, no sureties, no convictions, everything is open for question, everything is, can be doubted. And again, an agnostic position is very compatible with all of that. Um, and I do think one of the great um, threats to our, our liberal society is the um, encroachment of increasingly fundamentalist beliefs, which are founded on, to my mind at least, um, some really quite bizarre opinions. This, I think, is also one of the reasons, in fact, why I feel that I'm moving away from agnosticism. Um, because it seems to somehow sustain that limbo, that being comfortable with uncertainty. Um, that, and again, I think you alluded to it yourself, gives us, I feel, an insufficient basis to act. That is, I think, what it comes down to. Um, I find it very hard to see how an agnostic position could really develop into an, a, 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 a widely based alternative to fundamentalism. Because I think fundamentalism is very often a retreat for those who cannot tolerate that kind of agnostic uncertainty. This gentleman here. This doesn't uh, probably have anything to do with anything you said, but it popped into my mind. I remember on television, before Vietnam, there was Madame Nu. Who? And Madame Nu, I think she was the uh, dictator's oh, wife right, or yeah. something like that. Mm -hmm. And she was talking disparagingly. She said, oh, uh, I believe another Buddhist monk has just uh, set himself afire by dousing himself with gasoline. And that's coming to my mind now for some reason. And I'm thinking to myself, it's probably connected with your talk about concern with morals, what it has to do with Buddha. Me, I know, my, I'm not a Buddhist. I just meditate. I find it relaxes me, gets me less uptight sometimes. A lot of times I don't even bother meditating. <laughs> so uh, I'm thinking, what is this guy setting himself on fire have to do with the man in the moon? I mean, what? It's off the wall. That. If this is the only world there is, well, he's not an agnostic. He's probably the type of uh, Buddhist monk who thinks there's an afterlife. But is he sure that he's going to get to that afterlife by burning himself with gasoline? Chancy. Yeah. Well, again, I think, I, I mean, this, uh, th th that image of the monk burning himself in Saigon, um, I think it's yes, one of those powerful images of our, certainly of my lifetime. Um, Tignat Han, who knew him, um, I think he put it very well. He said that um, that by performing that kind of action was an it was an act of desperation of those whose voice could not be heard in any other way. Uh, that I think is is valid. Um, I personally feel the action is too extreme but in that circumstance in that position where the Buddhists like this fellow who's called Chang Duk I think they were trying to create a middle position they were trying to create a way of being that was neither communist nor 
capitalist. And yet that was the voice which in my perspective would have been the most sane voice, not driven by ideology, that was um, suppressed and denied and reviled by both sides. And to that extent, the immolation was a desperate act of those whose voices have been silenced. And I think there's something about the way in which it was done that came across with an extraordinary dignity. The, the figure of that man uh, sitting there, and not flinching, it appeared, um, communicated something, said something, that we still struggle to understand now. We still debate. It's come up for you now. Yeah, I, I 40, do remember 50 it. 40, years yeah. later. That, to me, is a very profound statement. Uh, I may disagree with the, you know, the, the, the killing of oneself in that way, but one cannot deny the effectiveness that that act gave to those who had no voice. Um, the very interesting book, which is out of print, unfortunately, is called Vietnam, Lotus in a Sea of Fire. It's by Thich Nhat Hanh, but it was published in the early 60s, and it, it addresses all of this, and there's some very interesting correspondence at the back of the book where Martin Luther King um, criticizes Thich Nhat Hanh for supporting this act. It's very interesting. What's the title again? It's called Vietnam, Lotus in a Sea of Fire by Thich Nhat Hanh. It's, if you're interested in Thich Nhat Hanh's work, it's well worth looking at because it's, it's another Thich Nhat Hanh. It's not you know, smiling at flowers and stuff. It's, it, this is an engaged, this is a man in a highly conflicted situation, a bit like the Buddha I spoke of last night, who is struggling to give voice to his convictions and his values in that environment. And um, it, it's well worth reading. But you may have a hard time finding it, and the Thich Nhat Hanh community don't seem to want to reprint it. They disagree with the direction. I don't know. I don't know what the <laughs> ideas are behind. But I think it would be, it would be a great. Um, sorry, you can get it in a library. Yeah, you can find it in a library. I've got an old copy, but um, have a look at that. And that I think will shed perhaps some light on that particular issue. I'm afraid we've run out of time. Do you have a quick brief question? You guess so, right? <laughs> okay, what is it? it? I was, well, it's sort of more of a fast comment. I was with a sitting group. Can you group. try to get the mic? Okay, I was in a sitting group. A sitting group, uh -huh. And we were talking about reincarnation and the concept of reincarnation. And a number of us in the group, it was an academic community, were saying, well, we thought Buddhism was very viable without reincarnation, that it quite didn't need it, and it was one of the right. things that messed it up. And there was one man there who was probably the most knowledgeable, you know, done the most reading. And he said, I can't understand how you could bother if there is no reincarnation. It makes the whole thing worthwhile. Mm -hmm. You're just living in one world and I'm living in multiple worlds. Yes. And it was such a dichotomy. And we just sort of all stared at each other for about a minute or two and then just said, mm -hmm. there's no resolution. We'll just go on. <laughs> you know, let's go back to the sutta. But it was just a very interesting mm -hmm. idea of these very uh, people from coming all coming from sure. an academic background mm -hmm. in this clash no thank you for that uh, I think this whole issue actually marks a fault line in the Buddhist community um, 
I, I'm often approached by people who say, if you don't believe in reincarnation, why would you do anything? Why would you uh, do good things? Why would you be moral? Why would you practice the Dharma? What would be the point? I find that unintelligible, frankly. I find it quite unintelligible. But um, clearly, and it is definitely much more, much truer to most Buddhist Orthodox positions. Uh, my friend Robert Thurman is again a strong advocate of this for him if you don't have what he calls a multi-life perspective your practice of the Dharma will be extremely limited um, I disagree but nonetheless this is an area that I do think uh, needs to be um, needs, need, needs to be gone into more in depth and I do think more dialogue has to take place between these different positions but a lot of the uh, a, lot, a lot of those who disagree with the things I say also have no interest really in discussing them there's a certain sense that this is just a dogmatic position, this is true and it's not actually a negotiable issue that tends to be the orthodox position but I do feel it has this argument particularly with you know, in, in a group like that I think it's a very healthy thing and a very worthwhile thing to explore particularly what are the assumptions that underlie your position why do you think rebirth's a waste of time why do you think it's indispensable I'm more interested really in what it is that motivates someone what is there in a person's experience of their life that leads them to that or to the other position and that I think is a very fruitful and worthwhile inquiry to pursue. Thank you very much for your attention today. Thank you. Hmm? Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's the same. I, in fact, karma is, to many respects, the Buddhist functional equivalent of God. It provi has the same function. Thank you. Thank you. Already. Yeah, you, you come across the same stuff. It's unfortunate, but a lot of people are drawn to... Buddhism has got a, has got a very good PR, and it presents itself very often as a religious tradition that is free from the problems that most religious traditions have. But unfortunately, it's not the case. You hit up against the same problems in a different clothing. Thank you. Are you familiar with the work of Don Cupid, the English theologian? I think I'm very much online with him. I like his work very much.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.